Welcome to Just Go Grind, a show that focuses on helping you launch and grow a business and navigate the ups and downs of entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Justin Gordon, and in this episode, we have Harsh Vasangam, co-founder and CEO of Moving Analytics, an innovative company conquering heart disease through digital prevention programs. In this episode, we go through how Harsh started this company, how he got his first customers, some of the questions he was asking potential customers early on, how his fundraising experience went for Moving Analytics, how he's built rapport with investors over time and the importance of doing that even when you're not fundraising, what's fueled the growth of Moving Analytics over the past number of years, managing cash flow as a startup, how he's built his team of experts over time, delegation, how he invests in himself as CEO, and some impactful books in Harsh's journey as an entrepreneur. As always, these show notes are at justgogrind.com slash podcast, and you can support the show by leaving a rating and review over in Apple Podcasts. Without further ado, here's Harsh. Harsh, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be here, Justin. Thank you so much for the opportunity to be here. Yeah, and I appreciate you taking the time, and I'm excited to talk about moving analytics. And with this company, what are you guys doing there for people who aren't familiar? Uh, so in a nutshell, I'd, I'd say what we provide is a uh, at-home service for someone who's had a heart attack or heart surgery uh, to recover safely and to get back to full health at home. Um, you know, the, the overall problem is every year there are about three and a half million uh, acute coronary events. And what that means is like sudden coronary events, things such as heart, heart attacks, heart surgeries, and so on. And studies show that if you complete your uh, post-acute rehab program, uh, um, uh, you, your risk of getting a second heart attack drops by up to 30 to 40, 40%. And uh, you, your, your life expectancy doubles, like your chance of living another five-year doubles, basically. So it's a really life-saving service. And honestly, if it were a drug, it would be a blockbuster drug uh, out there. <laughs> uh, 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 but the, the bad news is that despite its benefits, very few uh, patients after these events get access to the service because to do it, if it wasn't for us, they would have to visit a hospital about 30 to 40 times to get the service through uh, in-person classes. Uh, so, you know, if you live far away or if you're like me, you live in LA and parking's a big issue, um, <laughs> you can't make it anywhere. Uh, uh, and so it's, you know, you, most people don't do it. And the, you know, the the economic and the clinical consequences are devastating, right? So like over $50 billion is uh, spent on unnecessary care because patients don't get access to rehab and so on. Um, so we've created a service that basically takes that whole facility-based experience and replaces it with an at-home experience. Uh, and we leverage the greatest and latest in technologies to make it a very seamless experience for you uh, to to get it at home and therefore get better. And with this harsh as well, I mean, what does that look like in terms of the patients actually using this? What does that experience entail? What does it consist of? Yeah, so um, so you know, if, if let's, let's take the scenario where uh, the current status quo, right? So um, if you get a heart attack and you agree to join a rehab program, um, essentially you would uh, have to call up the rehab facility. Oftentimes, there's a two to three month long wait list. Um, and they would uh, say, "Hey, okay, you know, we'll get, we'll let you know, and we have a few spots available because we only do like you know, thirty spots a day or something like that." Um, and two months later, you would probably, if you still were interested, you would join the rehab class. Uh, they'd come in, they'll let you come in, uh, they'll do a few assessments on you, 
um, they'll do an interview of you and they'll create a treatment plan. And that treatment plan will involve you going to an outpatient facility, something like three times a week uh, for about an hour long class. Uh, the hour long class is usually 30 minutes of exercise and then some education that happens. Usually it's in the form of either PowerPoint presentation or group discussion. You go home, you repeat, you do this 36 times. Uh, between those classes, you really don't have much, like you're on your own. Like, you know, you, you could sit, you could exercise, no one would know, no one would ask you anything. Um, and, uh, you know, it's almost like a very compartmentalized scenario. Uh, now cut to moving analytics, right? So what we do is uh, if you are uh, eligible for our program, uh, we'll call you up. Uh, we'll make sure you would like to participate in the exam in our program. We'll ship you a kit. Uh, you don't have to move anywhere or get anywhere to get the kids delivered to your door. Uh, the kit usually consists of a blood pressure cuff, a weight scale, an exercise tracker, and some educational materials that is in the form of a booklet. And then uh, you're immediately connected to a, um, uh, a coach who's usually an exercise physiologist or a registered nurse. Uh, that coach uh, basically does a few uh, virtual assessments of you. So uh, he or she may ask you to walk around the room. Um, they may take your blood pressure, your weight scale, uh, your weight measurements, and they'll conduct a few assessments through an app that's installed on your phone. Uh, once all that's done, our system basically creates a treatment plan that is then further refined uh, by the coach uh, through a discussion with you. Uh, and by the way, all of this happens through like a telehealth visit. So it's all done through like a video call uh, where you're yeah. on, where you get all of that. And uh, once that's in, uh, that we create the treatment plan. We ship that off to your uh, cardiologist who will approve it. And then through 12 visits, essentially we... Uh, basically give you homework between those visits and things to do and we track how adherent you are but usually what we do is we don't really it's not that it's not like a school drill sergeant you know like saying oh you didn't do it i'm gonna do it the whole idea is like you're coming to us because you are wanting to get healthier and better um so we're here to act as a friend resource uh, for you and help you build sustainable habits that can help you uh, basically get healthier and those habits include things like exercise daily um, uh, making sure you eat right, uh, making sure you take your meds on time. If you're stressed out and you have high blood pressure, bringing your stress levels down. Uh, if you're a smoker, helping you quit smoking. And we really work with you to resolve those patterns uh, in the context of your day-to-day -day life. Um, and so, uh, and the nice thing about that is, is we found that it's inherently more sustainable because uh, like, it's not like you are compartmentalizing your life like to the rehab facility and then go home and then you do whatever you want. It's actually integrated into your life on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, and more importantly, you don't have to travel anywhere to get it. Like it's part of your day-to-day -day routines. Um, so anyway, that's a compare and contrast in how we do our job. Yeah. And with that too, Harsh, I mean, this is, it makes a lot of sense in terms of how you're going about this. And it's so much more convenient for people to have this, especially if they're, they really want to pursue this and just to have it fit within their lives. I'm curious though, how did this get started in the first place, Harsh? It started with three co-founders. Uh, we all met at uh, USC, Fight On. So yes, <laughs> uh, I was doing my PhD in computer science, uh, focusing a lot on how to use data science and AI to manage chronic diseases. Uh, did a lot of work in pre-diabetic and uh, um, uh, in uh, weight management. Uh, I had my other two co-founders, Adi and Shu, were doing their masters in uh, uh, engineering management and in computer science, respectively. And uh, we met in school. Um, and personally, for me, I was not that interested in a life in academia. I wanted to put out uh, uh, products that could benefit everyday everyday lives. 
Um, and when working with uh, 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 my research, you know, I met Ade, uh, who was working at the USC's uh, Stevens Institute, which is their commercialization wing. Uh, we hit it off really well, and then we decided to say, "Hey, you know, here's something that really benefits people. But here, what is it? Where's an opportunity where it can actually impact people's lives? Uh, and also, you know, what are situations where someone would literally die if they didn't exercise as much?" Um, that's basically what led us to, uh, you know, basically talk to as many potential customers as possible. And um, it led us to a chance meeting with the American Heart Association, where they said, hey, you know, here's a situation where someone would die if they don't exercise. And this is after they get a heart attack, a heart surgery. It's really important for them to adopt healthy lifestyle habits. So this was seven years ago. And I think we uh, it's one of those situations where the more we dug into the problem, the more interesting the problem was. And ultimately, it was an issue of like, hey, there's not enough access to care. Uh, yeah. And because of silly things like transportation and cost. So you're like, what if we took that experience and reimagined for the 21st century? And that's basically the mission we're on since then uh, towards today. And in that customer discovery process, Harsh, what were some of the questions you were asking these these potential customers around the idea you had and kind of the hypothesis you had about you know fixing this problem? What were some of those questions you had for them? Um, so... The kinds of questions we had uh, were, first of all, to determine if there was a problem in the first place, right? So, um, and when I say problem, there I, I guess there are several dimensions to it. So number one is, um, you know, is there a quality of life problem for patients? Uh, the second is, is there a sustainable business model that can be developed around solving that quality of life problem, right? And um, and, and it's interesting in healthcare because of the way the system is, where the person who receives the care doesn't necessarily directly pay for the care. Those are, in fact, both of those questions need to be answered if you really want to build a sustainable healthcare company. Um, so the kinds of questions we asked were, number one, um, questions that basically threw light on the original problem I stated, which is what problems do patients face today? Uh, yeah. What stops them from coming? Um, what, uh, uh, what, you know, if they had a magic wand to resolve this issue, how would they solve it and so on. Um, the second angle we took was, uh, so who would actually economically benefit from this problem, right? Um, and why would they economically benefit? And then the answers we got there were around, hey, if a patient doesn't uh, get readmitted, uh, it's the health insurance company that benefits, right? So the, if the health insurance, health insurance company is trying to reduce readmissions, they must be willing to pay for that value. And that led us to the route of trying to find health plans that are willing to cover us as a benefit, at least conditionally, if not permanently, uh, uh, until we proved out our results. And that's that that informed the way we went about our business. I would say. And and with that too, then so understand like, those are the people who are gonna you know are gonna pay for this, and that's a crucial part, especially in healthcare, is the the whole business model behind this. Yeah. How did you decide on who you were gonna pursue? How are you gonna start reaching out to them to really get even your first? customer on board for this oh yeah um so <laughs> in, in healthcare um evidence is really critical um probably more so than a lot of other industries um, and i would say the evidence usually falls in three categories so one is usability so are people using this and finding the are finding a technology very easy to use uh, the second is clinical where does this meaningfully improve the standard clinical outcomes that are expected for that particular condition or indication. Um, and then the third one is economic, right? So do you, d does this product or service 
produce economic benefits to uh, some party in the system that can promote, be a catalyst for its adoption. Um, and so when we looked at you know, the types of customers that we wanted to get, we, we basically went down that order. So number one was which customer could really help us prove feasibility that people do actually want to use it. Um, and we were lucky in that I think uh, we, we, we were in a, a few business development programs at USC and USC was kind of like our uh, first uh, beta test where we showed that feasibility uh, through the Keck School of Medicine. Um, and then we started working with other customers uh, such as NYU Langone and a bunch of other locations um, where uh, essentially it was you know small like 20, 30 patient rollouts where we would show that uh, not only is it feasible for it to be used by patients, but also that the clinical outcomes improve. Once we hit a certain, um, I would say almost like a, a escape velocity there, we started low focusing on the economic outcomes. And really the last two or three years of our company's growth has been in showing in more and more cases that we can actually save costs and uh, improve quality of care at the same time uh, with customers. Um, and as we thought about which customers we would go after, you know, the nature of customers changed. So the, initially, we spent a lot of time with providers. Uh, now, to show the economic feasibility, we spent a lot of time with health plans because they have the data to prove out, uh, uh, you know, reduce costs, more savings, and so on. Um, and that's been a natural evolution for us going forward. And, and in the early days as well, Harsh, with this idea, you can get the validation from, from customers and the different people that are involved. But... You have to fund this in some capacity, but I saw you bootstrap for the first two years. Take me through the funding side of this business early on. Yeah, uh, I you know um, funding is definitely uh, you know really uh, a sweet or a prickly issue depending on your perspective. <laughs> uh, I'd say uh, if I had to do if I had a magic wand and if I could do it again, what I would do is spend um, most. I would raise a small amount of capital, uh, less than. Uh, you know, less than a million for sure, probably even half a million to just find the right customer who can show initial clinical and usability based outcomes. Um, um, and then I would raise uh, something like two to three million dollars to show cost savings outcomes. Uh, and then I would raise a lot, a ton more money to um, spend on sales and marketing to sell to other plants based on the cost saving outcomes. So that, that's, that's how I would build a digital health company in the future. Um, but I think, you know, the way, what we did was, I think we initially raised money and we, we, we presumed that clinical and usability feasibility meant higher adoption without showing the economic feasibility. And we, we raised a bit more money to, spend money on sales, but the sales weren't coming because we hadn't yet shown the economic pieces. Over <laughs> um, so, um, and I think, you know, every, of course, everyone uh, learns their lessons and improves. That's part of being an entrepreneur. Uh, but I think you know, it's really important in healthcare, I think, to get your outcomes correct first b before you start scaling sales. Uh, and, you know, I, I would be very careful about how we raise capital to achieve those goals. You were kind of bootstrapping initially so how did you get through the how did you get through that time when you were bootstrapping uh you know i think we all had day jobs where uh we worked as research in my case i worked as a researcher at usc and um uh, we had uh, ade was obviously consulting in a few places and Shua was consulting in a few places so i think we, you know we we just pay, 
you know, found a way to, um, well, we, I think at that time we were still young enough that we were uh, students and we were able to live a quote unquote <laughs> student lifestyle. Uh, so we, we could just survive on a lot less uh, 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 than we do than, than probably even today. Uh, but we, you know, we just said, hey, this is the long term goal. Um, uh, let's keep our burn, our internal burn as low as possible. Uh, let's uh, apply to any source of funding we can get. So whether that's like business plan competitions, grants, uh, uh, and so on. And let's find other ways by which we can keep ourselves into, uh, personally sustained, you know, so we can pay the rent, eat our food and so on, while we keep building our company. Um, and then as we grew, um, and when it became, came to a stage where uh, it, it couldn't just be the three of us or the four of us uh, to deliver the ser- to, to deliver the service of our company, then we went out and raised funds, right? So we made it more based on market demand as opposed to um, you know what we thought was like, hey, we built a great product and now we need to raise more money to build more product, basically. And when you were pursuing then outside capital, because you knew you had to grow beyond the team you had in place at that time, then yeah. How did that go for you? Because if I'm correct, you hadn't raised venture before. How yeah. did that go? How was that process? How did you approach it at least? Um, well, definitely, I think uh, now we've spent a lot of enough time in this uh, industry, we, uh, we're more savvy. But at that time, I think uh, the, the, we relied a lot on uh, mentors to help us get introductions to uh, investors. Um, we Our first round was uh, had a few... Um, uh, uh, professional VCs, but it was mostly a friends and family round as well. Um, and, you know, it's, I guess, it, as much credibility as we can pull together uh, and approach our friends and family to participate. And we were very lucky. We had very supportive members like that. Um, and uh, we relied on mentors to get introductions to the leading VCs in this space. And uh, we worked with those mentors to also guide us through things like term sheets, um, I would always recommend getting good counsel. So we had good legal counsel to help us guide through the term sheets. Um, and ultimately, uh, we, were, uh, we were able to sign on uh, some great VCs who helped us uh, uh, with our first million and a half raise at that point. Um, and you know, I think end of the day, what, what I would say is you have to be willing to uh, uh, trust the other person, but they also have to be willing to trust you. Um, and, you know, and if that's great, then it's good to bring on that partner. And, uh, you know, and th- that's what we had at that stage. We had really good partners whom we felt we could trust and grow with at that point. And, and Sue, with you and your founders, your co-founders, was there, like, how long was that discussion around like equity splits, around founder agreement? Uh, take me through how that went for you. Cause there's a lot of founders that are going to be early stage listening who, yeah. you know, they're going through that exact thing and it can be such a difficult conversation. I'm curious as to how you kind of approach that harsh. Um, so I think there was, um, a couple of things, um, usually you, the way you would split equity, at least way I would do it is, uh, you know, the person who usually the CEO gets a little bit more or the person who's nominated as the CEO gets a little bit more, uh, um, the remaining founders, depending on their uh, roles in the company, uh, may get a, you know, either the same amount or a smaller fraction of what the CEO's percentage equity is, right? Um, I would say the key things that I should say is um, we, sh- we shouldn't think of this as an antagonistic relationship. Like at the end of the day, uh, the you know all the oars need to row in the same direction and the ship will go faster or the boat will go faster. 
Yeah. Um, it's about incentivizing each other to be the best version of yourselves uh, and uh, and just being generous as part of that, right? Uh, to the extent that it doesn't hurt the other parties. It's more about that. And you, I don't think it's about like, oh, I have more and that person has less. It's about how can we both get uh, a suitable amount and be heavily rewarded once, you know, we uh, are successful. So it's, it's about that. Um, to that end, I think what we found to be super helpful is, uh, number one, having it be a milestone or time-based vesting schedule uh, for founders. So that, you know, if, for example, there is a, a, a founder who says, hey, I deserve more, uh, it opens up the question of, okay, why do you, do, do, you th- do you feel you deserve more? Are you willing to go at risk so that uh, if you do achieve it, yeah, everybody's happy. It's, it makes the company successful. It makes me successful too, because I also own equity in the company. Um, yeah. uh, uh, and uh, obviously you'll get what you what you feel you deserve. Um, uh, and then the other thing is on the, to protect against downside. If, you know, if for some person, if you find out that, you know, founder is not willing to go on that long journey for whatever reason, uh, then you, you know, you have a vested base share. So you don't give up all of your equity upfront. Uh, uh, for that company. And I think it's also important that, uh, you know, as you're thinking about it, it's important that all founders um, sign up for vesting and not just one or two. Uh, I think it's super important that everybody signs up because uh, that indicates that we're all in this together um, and we're all trying to grow the value of our company and uh, share in the success of that. So that's my, that's my take on it. Yeah, no, I appreciate that perspective because you know everyone has kind of a different a different story around that. I think it's helpful to get those perspectives from different founders and see how they went about it to, you know, give give other founders an idea of how they should approach this process. And there's something to learn from from everyone who's done it um, because obviously venture capital it's, it's a small percentage of companies that will ever get venture capital, uh, but yep. there are differences within that as well. And take me through then going from that first, you know, the family friends. Uh, money you raise as well, but then also you raise a few million more after that. How did the, you know, after you had done the initial funding, take me through like that, that seed round, then getting like Harlem, Harlem Capital Partners on board, uh, like OCA Ventures. How did that go comparably to your, your, your initial funding? Um, so I think a lot of that was when we raised funds, um, we set milestones against which we would. Um, uh, as we achieve those milestones, the value of our company would grow and it would bring on what I would call another tier of elite investors, right? Like OCA or um, uh, Harlem and so on. Uh, I think what we learned was, um, uh, number one, it's really important to build a relationship with an investor because it's not just about the capital. Uh, it's about you know the advice they give you, the connections they bring in. Uh, the um, you know the support they give you uh, either fi- future financial support or um, you know moral support or emotional support whatever you, you need as a founder to be successful right so um, and we've been very lucky in that most all our major investors have been like great like you know I can call them up at any time and run issues by them and they'll 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 stay on the phone as long as I need them to to resolve these issues. Um, so, but in order to establish those relationships, it's like any other relationship, you have to build trust and you have to build that uh, rapport over time. Um, and I think we've been, uh, one of our, I would say superpowers has been that we do build that rapport over time. And, you know, that's how we got our first clinical team members from Stanford to join our company. Um, we've had great investors who joined our company as well. Uh, all of those folks are, 
uh, you know, just yeah, that trust gets built over time. And when they see that you're achieving different milestones, uh, they do want to keep supporting you, right? And then either come in financially for the first time or contribute financially further as well. So, um, yeah, and, and if I would basically say it's like, number one, finding the right investors who match your profile. Like uh, in our case, uh, both OCA and Harlem, uh, you know, were really good on the healthcare side. Um, uh, and second piece is building a relationship well before you are looking at uh, financial investment or capital investment from an investor because you want to build that trust over time. Um, and then at the end of the day, I think it's also important not to get too hung up on minor terms when you're getting the investment because, you know, end of the day, everybody's trying to get the ship to be successful and reach its destination. <laughs> right? So uh, you, you want to kind of focus on that and not on, you know, percentage point ownership here or something like that over there. Yeah, and on that note as well, Harsh, with building that relationship with investors, I've definitely heard that before. But for people who you know maybe aren't familiar, how you go about that? Is it a matter of investor updates? Like, how how are you doing that? How are you building that relationship over time, especially before you actually necessarily need capital? Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, one great piece of advice I got is um, investor seeking investors is a sales process. It's like seeking customers, where the product is your company or the shares of your company. And uh, um, investors are your customers, okay? and and they're looking at a return on investment, you know, five, six, ten years down the line, basically, right? So that's there. Um, so what we like any customer process, like you, what you should do is, um, you know, always uh, uh, inbound works better than outbound. Uh, uh, warm introductions <laughs> work better than uh, cold emails. Um, so it's always like a, a part of my day is consistently reaching out. Uh, through my networks uh, to get introductions to investors, uh, like future investors, like who might invest like 18, 24 months down the line and telling them about our company with no commitment, right? So say, hey, this is just what we're doing. Uh, can I keep you updated? Is this something that's interesting to you? Is it fit? Does it fit in your thesis, your future? And for me to also learn from them in terms of, so what is your in, uh, kind of investment thesis? Uh, what levels of companies are you looking at? You know, what revenue milestones do they need to hit? What and so on and so forth. So I can understand what their needs are, what they're looking to optimize for, and you just gradually build that intelligence and database. And based off that, you know, when the time is right, you can pull the trigger and say, "Hey, we are currently raising around. Would you be interested?" In between the time where you're making that ask and you made your first introduction, I personally like to do a quarterly update where I just talk about three things we did well uh, and three things we've learned and what the three things are that we are going for uh, going to do for next quarter. Um, and that just becomes like a running log of our success. Um, and it actually helps me when I reach out to the investor again, because I can literally just go back to my history of emails with that person and say, <laughs> Look, this is what we did as part of that. Um, so I, I, I try not to complicate it too much. Uh, you know, it's usually I found that the number, the power of the number three is really uh, where the magic is, right? So it's just very simple. It's, it's explain what you're doing well and uh, what you're looking to do and let that be a running log over time. And when the time is right, you can make the ask. And it's always important to start early rather than late, I would say. Yeah, I think that's, that's great advice to be kind of ahead of things with that as well and having this relationship so, you know, venture capitalists understand, you know, when your timeline may be for funding as well. And there's a typical schedule with that as well, looking at 18 months, obviously, overall in terms of the uh, one run to the next. And that can, of course, vary a lot depending on the company. But with 
this company as well, I mean, what fueled the growth from those early days, you know, 2013 or so, you're bootstrapped and you raised some funding, what fueled the growth to get into, you know, I think you said, I think it's mentioned somewhere, 25 health systems or something, several payers as well. What has fueled that growth over time, Harsh? In, like I said before, in healthcare, evidence is key. Um, and evidence is a proxy for our brand, or maybe it's the other way, the brand is a proxy for your evidence. <laughs> Uh, uh, but um, what we've been able to do is consistently show that we can provide clinical and economic value to our provider and health plan customers. And the more case studies we put out, uh, the more people have been willing to trust us with their with larger and larger contracts and larger and larger contract uh, like deployment sizes. And I think that has really helped us to basically, it's become this virtuous circle where, you know, we do, we achieve success. Um, we, uh, once we get that success, we're able to use that to leverage as leverage to bring on bigger contracts and then we get bigger and bigger success. So I think it's end of the day, like good old fashioned, like, you know, uh, uh, hard work and saying, doing what you say uh, you would do and then saying, and then charging for that, right. And in terms of the value you're providing. And then uh, as you build more and more uh, proof points of you showing value, um, you, know, you, you, the, the, you, it's like in a video game, you go to like level two, level three, level four, <laughs> and, uh, and then you, know, you just have diff- more difficulty, but it's also more fun and uh, more responsibility as part of this all. Yeah. And one of the things too, with obviously a startup and you're, you're raising a round of funding to get to the next round of funding and to reach yeah. those next milestones along the way. How do you think about finances, managing cash flow, you know, yeah. prioritizing on that side? I'm curious. Uh, yeah, I think um, my view is that I'm trying to build a, a large company, a large and profitable company that's centered around uh, improving the lives of patients with cardiovascular disease, right? And uh, producing evidence-based therapies that can help improve their lives and have uh, you know, health plans and other customers uh, pay for that benefit that we're providing so the way i think of fundraising is um obviously it would be great to go from zero to uh you know unicorn or uh (laughs) serving 100,000 patients a year like within 24 hours but you can't uh there are steps that you have to do and even from a team perspective you have to gradually ramp up your teams so that you can actually uh, build capacity and and also incorporate any lessons you've learned along the way uh, and tweak your product appropriately to uh, to demonstrate value to your customers. So um, the way I think about it is, what is the next set of meaningful milestones that we need to achieve as a company? How much of that can be uh, met through our own revenue needs? And how much of that is a gap in capital where if we uh, raised a certain amount of money in exchange for shares in our company, we'd be able to hit the next set of meaningful milestones and then improve the value of our company going forward. So what we've been, um, what I feel a lot of folks do is um, they view fundraising as the end goal <coughs> rather than the means to an end, right? Which is yeah. to grow your um, And so... I think the the way we think about it is if we didn't have to raise funds, that's the best scenario. Uh, but unfortunately, we have to raise funds uh, because you know, in order to hit a certain milestone set, 
um, you know, there's not enough revenue we could generate today that could help us achieve that milestone set. Um, so we, and so we, we look at that, we do the financial modeling. Um, we say, okay, so this is our, how much our shortfall is, who are the right kinds of investors who can help us achieve that. And then we go and start the conversation with those investors when the time is right. So that's typically how we think about it. Um, and, you know, some, sometimes those milestones are not necessarily revenue based. Uh, you know, if you're a device company, it could be getting FDA clearance. Or uh, if you're in the early stages of a company's growth, it is, you know, for certain, like a certain validation study you need on your product and so on. Uh, and you got to find the right kind of investor who, who believes in that milestone as you do and uh, support you financially to achieve that, let's say. Yeah. And there's something to that being very methodical on how you spend that because you you can you can back into the numbers relatively easy uh, once you figure out where you're at obviously with revenue wise and predicting that out especially the further along you get and it's pretty clear in terms of the milestones you need to hit typically if you ask a number of investors so they'll, they'll have some idea at least of you know getting to the next round is what you need to hit etc and you can kind of back into what you need uh from there as well but to that point how you get there is a team in place that helps make this happen i'm curious yeah. as to how you've gone about building that team, you know, at moving analytics. Yeah, I, I think um, team is the number one predictor of success to me uh, in a company. Uh, definitely in the early stages, uh, uh, even more, and definitely in, uh, for sure in like the later stages too. I think the uh, when we thought about our team, um, at the very least, what you need is someone who can handle being a technology focused company, uh, someone who can handle the tech stack, someone who can handle your operations. And someone who can handle the sales aspect. That's like the minimum team that you need as part of it, right? Um, but then quickly as you grow and you get more customers, uh, you often have a, uh, you know, a backlog of features that you have to implement and prioritize. Uh, you have to have different specialists who are specifically dealing with customers' front-end problems. Uh, you have to you know, obviously invest more in sales to keep growing your company's, uh, build, building and growing on your company's success. Um, and that basically dictates the kind of team you want to hire. Uh, in our case, the way we felt uh, our company's growth should have been in the beginning, a lot of our func focus was on really trying. We were not experts in cardiac rehabilitation. So we needed to bring in clinical experts who knew the space, who understood the space and uh, could guide us on the clinical and operational aspects of delivering a rehab program. And uh, so we were lucky in that we found, uh, you know, our chief clinical officer, Nancy Houston Miller, and um, an advisor, Dr. Bob DeBusk from Stanford, who had built and delivered a, a home-based rehabilitation program uh, in Kaiser uh, as well. Um, and that expertise was a difference between night and day for us. It gave us instant credibility. It gave us, uh, it, it was possible for us to talk to clinicians, like by bringing our clinicians on board so they could talk, you know, as they say, they carry the union card. So essentially they could speak the same <laughs> language, talk about it. So th that really helped us quite a lot. As we started growing, um, the, a lot of the goals were focused on, hey, you know, like how do we grow this product, add more features, make it a more rich product that can meet the needs of our customers to put us ahead of the competition. Uh, and that's where we invested a lot in uh, product R&D teams who basically were looking at adding new features and so on. We put together a very uh, robust, uh, uh, you know, basically product management process uh, and vetting and QA process in place and so on. Um, and then as we started working more and more with larger customers like health plans, 
it was obvious that you know the founders and uh, the early employees couldn't take on the load of just managing such a large customer. So we started bringing on more teams who could bring in the uh, sort of day-to-day expertise of managing a customer's needs and expectations and convey that to our product team. And, and it's really been evolving in that sense, dictated by the needs of our company's growth um, and also the product needs and the, uh, you know, the strategic needs of the company as well. Yeah. And one of the things to that point you mentioned is bringing on the kind of expertise that you didn't already have uh, yeah. to have more credibility. How did you convince them to join the startup? Okay, let me answer this. What you what does not work, right? So, uh, financial incentives do not work, according to me. I think what we've been what we've seen is the people who are successful in our company are people who like a certain way of life, where you're placed in a very ambiguous situation. Um, uh, uh, I liken it to you're placed in a room that's completely dark, and you need to find your way out uh, 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 by <laughs> hypotheses. People, there are some people who enjoy that, basically, that kind of a puzzle. Um, uh, whereas I think there are some people who like a steady process and then who just like refining and refining and refining in that process. That's a, that's a different skill set, but not probably the most appropriate skill set in an early stage startup. Uh, so I think end of the day, what, what we found is like finding those people who have that sort of way of thinking um, giving them an opportunity to prove themselves and showcase themselves, saying, hey, you know, these are really tough, difficult and open-ended situations, but you're not getting the chance to do the same thing in your current occupation. We can give you the chance. And by doing that, you get to ride the, the, you know, the, the wave with us and show your own success and our success will be linked to your success. They're just working on it that way. So I guess for me, it's more about finding people who are internally motivated to do this and then using external motivators like a bonus or stock options and so on as more a catalyst than the reason why someone would join. Um, and to me, that's been the strongest predictor, honestly, like more than any other uh, piece as part of it. It boils down to, do you want to join a fast growing company and take on several responsibilities that are ambiguous? Do you get, <laughs> you get turned on by that basically. Yep. Yeah, yeah, it's a different person for sure that works at a startup. Yeah, it's a certain type of person that will work at a startup and have be you know be motivated and incentivized in kind of a different way as well. And and kind of on that similar similar note, how do you look at delegation? I mean, as as CEO of the company, uh, yep. I'm sure your role has shifted in the last you know seven years. Uh, yep. How do you think through delegating now at this point? You know, seven years into this company. Yeah, you know, as CEO. Um, but you know, a lot of the initial code, uh, which thankfully we don't use anymore, uh, is uh, <laughs> by me. So the, along with our CTO as well, um, uh, and the and then it started evolving more into a sales role, uh, and then it I do a lot of our post sales management uh, still, uh, uh, although we're looking to bring on more people, um, and. Meanwhile, we've hired an amazing product team that works, uh, you know, day and night to implement a lot of great features and put together processes. Uh, what I found to be important is um, you have to learn to recognize as a founder where when you are more in the way rather than a catalyst, where you're more a hindrance than a catalyst, uh, and you have to actually constantly seek to put yourself out of a job uh, in different roles. Um, I think as founders, it's super easy because of the type of people who, who a good founder is like you can, they can do sales, they can do product, they can do, uh, you know, customer support, 
but you know it may not be the best use of their time and there's also a tendency to feel like you have to have control over that process um, uh, so that uh, you know otherwise the quality will go away whereas the better way to think about this is how can i find somebody who is better than me at this process or has the potential to be better than me in this process maybe mentor them as part of a transfer of power but then at some point i i ops- make myself obsolete and i'm more of a hindrance than a catalyst um and you can feel that like when once you you're in a certain meeting and like you have nothing to say that's intelligent <laughs> that's when you know you've done a good job uh, in that uh, in that team it's very easy for founders to not give up things but they have to give up things if they want the company to grow yeah and as a as a founder especially as a ceo i mean you are you're you're just pulling a lot of strings and guiding the direction but you're always going to end up bringing in people around you to do many you know, almost everything um you know from talking to so many founders on this show that's what's that's the name of the game really they're they're bringing in you know smart people with high integrity in a variety of positions that can do things better than they ever could at a particular task but then like as your role of ceo is really managing all of that and making sure you have the right people right seats and fundraising and sales and all the other kind of high level things as well uh which which is different than when you first get started obviously when you're writing code as you mentioned <laughs> yeah 100 uh, yeah understand like that side of things and your role shifting I'm curious yeah. as to how you invest in yourself and how you learn and grow as a CEO, especially the last number of years. How have you done that, Harsh? Um, so I think um, number one has been identifying uh, like what stage of CEO I'm at. You know, starting from like individual contributor to more a manager to a manager of managers, right? And go and going up that chain basically. Um, and at each stage. Uh, personally for me it's been um so what do i need to go up to the next level right um and more importantly what can i um who can i bring and surround myself with in terms of great advisors who can teach me the ropes uh, to get to that next level um and then uh in how can i complement that with you know reading books reading uh, resources uh, that can help me get to that level right so uh, for me it was i would say the different stages were obviously initial feasibility feasibility and then clinical feasibility and then growing sales and so on um and i think it's about finding those people and the right resources the good news is that you know like basically educating yourself at this point is free or negative cost you know at this point like people will pay you to teach you things basically so um <laughs> you know it's it doesn't take much like to literally go to amazon and be like uh you know best book on scaling a business and there you'll find like 10 article 10 books there that you can read right as part of it um each with its own kind of to-do list and checklist of things to do and you can implement that in your life um you don't really need to attend a course or or and so on uh, the other thing is i think finding great mentors who can help you uh you know both in our board and among our investors uh, there have been some really good mentors uh who I mean I can just go to and come with like problems and see how they think through it and uh you know some sometimes they'll be more prescriptive sometimes they'll be more uh, uh like hey you should do this you you know what are you doing here so i think it it's really that like you got to you got to recognize where you are you got to recognize you got to be honest with yourself about your limitations um and find out how you can pepper over those limitations but also grow stronger in the areas where you are strong 
um, and and then find mentors who can achieve that and find you know resources that you can use to uh, get better and better. Uh, and personally, I like to do this on the weekends. Like my every Saturday morning is uh, time for self reflection, learning. And I have my own notebook where I kind of take up a topic and see how I can learn more about it. Uh, and I keep doing that. It's really important to have the discipline to invest in yourself because end of the day, your company will improve as a result of yeah, that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's something you can't highlight enough of investing yourself as founders. It, it is limited by you in many ways in terms of what your company be- becomes. And even um, thinking, I think it might have been an interview or, or something I read of yours as well of, of you know thinking small versus thinking bigger within your company, I mean, that comes down to you. It's just how you yeah. as a founder CEO operates. And and for that, to that point as well, you mentioned books. Have there been any standouts in terms of books that were really impactful for you? I'm just curious. Oh, um, so many, I, I would say. So um, there's the, uh, I think it's called the, uh, let me actually pull it up. Uh, it's yeah, the, yeah. There's, I think, the one page, mar- uh, one page marketing plan. That's a really good book that I really enjoy on the sales side. Um, there's, um, I mean, I think there's always the Bible, which is the uh, Steve Blank's resources on uh, startups, right? So mm-hmm. there's uh, the four steps to epiphany, uh, uh, the, uh, the entrepreneur's uh, field guide or field manual. Um, all of that was extremely helpful to us. Um, I, I would say, uh, you know, we have a, a, a few more things related to healthcare, uh, that talk about uh, you know what uh, you know what is a good way to deliver healthcare and so on and so forth. Um, uh, there's also the innovators dilemma, crossing the chasm. The, one of the uh, nice books I've read was uh, you know getting to a yes, a stopping to a no to help with negotiation. Um, all of those I think are extremely good books that are that are, that I found useful. Yeah, I appreciate the sharing that. And there's a number of those that have definitely been recommended, but a few that are are, are new. And I think there's so much to learn. From these books, and there's obviously a, a balance between you know action and you know reading something versus taking action. Yeah. There's a, there's a mix of that. I think some people get caught up in just reading and never taking action. But at the same yeah. time, like you said, kind of investing in yourself as a founder. I mean, that's how you you take things to the next level. And also, as you've kind of already kind of talked about, but you know, seven years in, it's just a much different scenario and where you're at with a company than when you start. And you need to be able to solve a different set of problems in many ways. And so investing in yep. yourself is a way to kind of improve upon that. And and one of the things I'm wondering, one of the last things I'm wondering here is just how do you how do you recharge and kind of step away? I know you mentioned reflecting on Saturdays. What else do you do to kind of recharge or kind of de-stress? Uh, obviously, startup can be all-consuming. I'm curious in how you do that, Harsh. Oh, um, so, uh, I mean, I'm lucky that uh, I have a wife who uh, believes in having a good life as well. So uh, she, she, she's been a huge source of support for me uh, on a day-to-day basis, just kind of not only... Um, you know, supporting me on an entrepreneurial on my entrepreneurial journey, uh, but also uh, you know making sure that you know we also don't forget to lead a great life. Uh, so you know, we anything to do with food, we both love uh, uh, doing things. So I, I, I like to cook, or she likes to cook, uh, to uh, as part of that piece. Um, I'm a huge tennis addict, uh, so uh, most of my time, like free time, I like to just go against the wall, just practice. Or if I have a tennis partner, I just go play with him or her. Um, and, um, you know, or I keep watching tennis videos on YouTube, uh, as well. <laughs> it's been thing there. I do enjoy reading and do enjoy cooking quite a lot. Um, those are all ways that I 
unwind uh, as part of my day. Um, you know, anything with the great outdoors, you know, anything that gets me away from my screen um, and uh, the uh, and more like in tune and more in the present, in the moment, uh, uh, in around nature, I think is like extremely relaxing as well. Uh, you know, so I think that, that those are all things that keep me, uh, I'd say, grounded uh, and remind me, hey, this is not a race; it's a marathon. Um, and uh, you know, always try to find time to relax. I think it's actually very important to have the discipline to relax uh, because, uh, you know, I think there's even like a lot of research in your science about this where, you know, when you do think on a day-to-day basis, you're still using only your neurofrontal uh, cortex, uh, but there's other parts of your brain that also think at the same time. And it's really important that you get your sleep because that's where a lot of your other thinking is done. Uh, it's really important you relax uh, because that's where other parts of your brain light up and process the same information. Um, so I think it's super important to um, find the time to relax. It's not even a question of like, hey, it's a it's a macho thing but that I don't sleep or I work all the time. It's actually more productive and smarter if you take the time out to relax uh, so that you can continue to think on the problems in different ways uh, to uh, see if you can solve them up. Uh, that that that's my take on it as well. Yeah. Oh, I love it. I think it's 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 so important because that that does influence your decision making, and you're making so many important decisions kind of every day at a startup and guiding the ship, as you mentioned, day to day. If you're not making quality decisions because of whatever reasons you're not taking care of yourself, it's only going to impact your company in a negative way, and you might get away with it for a little bit, but to your point, it's, it's a long game you're playing, especially in this world where, you know, you're not going to potentially have an exit for a long time. If you get to that point. And even when you're looking at these relationships with investors and everything you're doing with a company, I mean, companies take time. If you're doing it right, you know, hopefully it'll last a long time and make a huge impact, but you're not going to get there overnight. So <laughs> taking yeah. uh, care of yourself is so important and, and harsh, where can people go to learn more about moving analytics and connect with you as well? Sure. Yeah. Uh, you can definitely reach our website, uh, www.movinganalytics.com. Follow us on Twitter, at uh, Moving Analytics, or uh, uh, find our LinkedIn page where we post a lot of updates as well. Um, those are all great places to reach out to us. Uh, my contact information is on the website, so you can reach out to me there. And uh, happy to answer any questions or see how we could uh, help, help you be healthier and happier as well. Awesome. Harsh, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today. My pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. And uh, I hope everybody stays healthy and free of cardiovascular disease as well. Absolutely. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Just Go Grind. If you want to follow along on the socials for all things Just Go Grind and with me as well, you can find Just Go Grind on Instagram and Twitter at Just Go Grind. You can find me on Twitter at JustinGordon212. Find me on Instagram, JustinGordon8. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day.